Welcome back to the Seahawks 360 podcast. That's right. I'm your host, Candace Higgins. And after a, you know, long-awaited wait, I am back to cover the Seahawks from every angle every week. So first off, guys, I want to apologize for missing some of the biggest action that has happened with the Seahawks. As you all may remember, um, the last episode we did, my husband and I did a special and then we left to go on vacation as our anniversary was three days after the uh, the well-awaited Seahawks versus Broncos game. And I just, I forgot my mic, guys. Like, I didn't bring my mic on the road with me. I didn't have any equipment to, to record this podcast. So uh, I was sad to say I was not able to record and I didn't get back till later yesterday. I've been gone for a little over a week now. So I missed you guys. I'm excited to get into it, try to cover all of the ups and downs that these first two weeks of NFL season has been for the Seattle Seahawks fan base. So let's get into it and talk some Hawks. Given the triumphant rise and fall, of your Seattle Seahawks. I can think of no more appropriate a quote than the great author Charles Dickens. It was the best of times. It was the worst of times. Okay, okay, I'm kidding. I was having fun with it. Uh, but, but really though, this past two weeks has been about as polar opposites of feeling as you can have for any fan base watching football games. Week one was triumphant, beating Russell Wilson and the Broncos at home. Loud, the the fans were just as big of a part of that as anything else, as any other game I can remember in recent history. It was, as the Broncos lovingly call it, the Seahawks Super Bowl. And it was about as good as you can get given the expectations of where the team was and the situations. And I think it meant a lot to not only the fan base, to Pete Carroll and that team. But coming off of a short week, I think week two was about a bad, as bad of a game as you can have. Literally nothing went right in that game except for a like unknown uh, you can't count on that kind of play it was a block punt play that was been led to a touchdown it's the only reason why Seahawks had any points on the board because the Seahawks hadn't scored and basically this is the first half of the Broncos game it's been six quarters of being scoreless from the offense so just about as opposite like I said of a contrast that you can have. It truly is a tale of two different games. So I'm going to do my best to try to cover these two games and their contrast and some things we could take away from both, some some trends that are starting to develop, and some of my takeaways from the games coming up next. So week one, as I mentioned, was about as high of a feeling as I have. I think that's one of the most meaningful wins I've ever experienced as a Seahawks fan probably since like the LB era. And 
It was amazing. Even more so for me personally, as you all know, my husband is a Broncos fan and practically got on this podcast and guaranteed a win. Did he not? If you don't remember, go back and listen. And guess what? Nathaniel Hackett made probably one of the worst coaching decisions of the NFL year, for sure, by opting to kick a 64-yard field goal instead of letting Russell Wilson try to complete convert the fourth down. That led to a victorious Seahawks win. Geno Smith proved what I thought, and that is that he can be a decent quarterback when the situation is right. He's not a guy who's going to elevate your team. He's not a guy who's going to um, you know, make the team, put the team on his back and carry the team to a victory. He's not that guy. But if the situation is right and the circumstances are right, he can manage the offense and manage it fairly well. I think he is, you know, in a lot of ways, what the Seahawks need. And I know everybody wanted Drew Locke, Drew Locke this and Drew Locke that. And some of you all still want Drew Locke. But I really stand by Geno's ability to uh, make the offense function. Now, if you get him behind the sticks, if there are a lot of penalties, which there have been, he's showing you who Geno is as well. He has his limitations, and I'm not going to pretend like they're not blatant and they're not obvious, but I think he can do generally what you need him to do. Would you like him to push the ball more downfield? Yes, we'll come to that when we talk more about week two, but I think Geno proved himself as a capable uh, starter, at least a functional starter. He is more of a backup, but a functional starter. And the uh, defense proved to be stout when needed. The goal line defense is incredible. There's still a lot of things to clean up, a lot of penalties to, to clean up. But this is a young squad, and I think that they proved that they've got a bright future. This is not the year, and it was never going to be. So there were bumps in week one. There were obvious things in week one. The run defense was bad in week one. And I, I think that's to be expected. You want more from some of your younger players, but I, I'm happy with the progress of especially this rookie class. I think week one they showed themselves pretty strong. Charles Cross held up pretty well against Bradley Chubb. He, he, he lost some momentum there at the end. I think he just got tired, and, and, and it's not easy to block Chubb for four quarters by any means, especially if you're a rookie tackle in this league. So he got beat on a couple of things, but – uh, I think there were some things Gino could have done to help himself. At least on one of those plays, Gino could have helped himself. On the other one, I think people said Gino could have avoided the sack. I, I'm not sure that that is. The pocket was collapsing. Uh, as Haynes wasn't able to really hold up there in, week, in that particular um, on that particular snap that people are talking about. But overall, victory, the win, was what mattered the most. The 12s were loud and uh, affected the game, really felt the presence of the 12s in that game. The energy was absolutely electric. Like I said, it was about everything that you could want in a week one victory. And it's, I think, it's probably the best version of the Seahawks that is going to be there. I think for the most part in terms of how the offense was able to take some deep shots and complete those, they were able to uh, keep the offense flowing pretty well. They, they stuck – they got stuck in the second half. I don't think they made enough. I don't think they made good enough adjustments in the second half. That was for sure an issue. But 
I think the gist, especially that first half of what the Seahawks showed, showed the best version of what the Seahawks can be. You're not going to consistently see that version of Seahawks. I think that's the ceiling, right? This team is not going to be an elite team. Any t- not, not this year, I don't think. I think they're building towards it. And you saw some of the foundation. And, and really, at this point, that's all the expectation should be. That's all I expect. Hopefully, that's all you expect because this this year is really about building the foundation for the quarterback of the future. Week two, a lot more to be desired. In fact, probably everything to be desired. So I'm not going to spend too much time talking about that game. The offense literally only had 50 plays, 50, like 50, 49, I think, plays, offensive snaps, not even 50 plays. The defense would couldn't really get stops, mostly due to penalties. I don't think – I think in the first half they got ran over. In the second half they did a lot better of a job of tightening up that game. But just couldn't get off the field due to penalties. A lot of it was just, you know, the defensive backs making critical errors. Uh, just some young players making mistakes, and, and that killed them. Killed them uh, really quite a bit. There were opportunities on offense to have some big plays, and particularly there was this great throw by Geno to DK Metcalf downfield off a trick play, and it was called back due to an Abraham Lucas uh, illegal man downfield, as I believe the call. So just stuff like that that just kept shooting themselves in the foot this game. That nothing could ever really get going, even on special teams. There was a muff punt just due to – Xavier Crawford, who had just been elevated off the practice squad, his first game special teams, he runs into Tyler Lockett and it messes up, messes up the punt. I mean, there just wasn't a lot that went right for the Seahawks. And every time they did do something, you know, or get some momentum going, like I said, they just shoot themselves in the foot. So I'm not going to spend too much time talking about that game. What I want to do is just talk about the overarching themes that I've seen. Just the five takeaways that I think are most relevant, things to pay attention to through two games, things that no matter how bad or no matter how good the fans felt at the end of each game, these things were things to be noted. And so that's going to be my focus today. Everybody's already broken down the Seahawks game to no end. The first one against the Broncos, everybody always has a lot of people have broken down to this point, the San Francisco 49ers game. So I'm not going to bore you with that. I'm just giving you a different take today. So when we pick back up in week three, I'll give you guys a typical game summary or game breakdown and, and go a little bit into the finer details of each game, takeaways and things like that. But like I said, just because of the timing of everything, just want to do a little different this week and we'll pick back up with a normal, more traditional schedule moving forward. So my first takeaway is that the offensive tackles, given how much they've been tested over the first two weeks, I think have held up pretty well. And if you look at PFF, you're not going to see anything particularly that blows you away. Right now, Charles crossed through two weeks grades at for PFF at an overall of 57.5. Um, the pass blocking is pretty low, mostly because of he had a 38 uh, pass grade from week one. Like I said, I think it would have graded out better, but that fourth quarter was pretty rough for Charles Cross. And his run blocking grade is a 62.3, which is, which is 
I think encouraging because that was the question on him. It was his run blocking, not necessarily his ability to pass protect. So that to this point, um, if you're not big on PFF, which I know everybody is not, a few things to keep in mind just statistically on him, he's only allowed two sacks through two games, so that's one sack a game, um, and he's allowed five total pressures to this point, no quarterback hits. And so I think that's pretty good. He played some premium talent in the NFL. He played Bradley Chubb, and he's not an easy guy to block for four quarter. That was his very first game. And then he went against Nicky Bosa, one of the best pass rushers in the league. So he played against some elite talent. And so I think as he gets more comfortable, for one, and he plays, you know, lesser talent. Not everybody had, not every team that we're going to play this year has a Bradley Chubb or a Nick Bosa. Not every team has that, and he's going to have some opportunities to really shine and hold up well. Like, and we, his, I think we're going to see performances more like what we saw in the preseason when he, you know, had more like 77 grades or 88 grades, and it's going to help him average it out. There's going to be some lows for him, and it's going to be some highs for him because, you know, a lot of rookie tackles don't get this much exposure. There really isn't um, anybody else at the scene that the team is leaning on. They're really giving it to him, and he's taking on some of the best talent in the NFL and, and doing pretty well. There's some room to grow, most definitely, but I think that's an encouraging takeaway from both games. The same applies to Abraham Lucas. Abe has actually not allowed any sacks to this point. He has allowed one quarterback hit. And he's allowed five pressures. His big thing has been he suffered some penalties. He's got three penalties, some of which have been very costly to the Seahawks. But encouraging things from him as well. He grades out at a 56.8 overall. His pass blocking is a 63.1, and his run blocking is a 62.1. I think that matches up. He's been pretty decent. He's had some ups and downs. I think the penalties, it's probably more than anything, was hurting his grade, given that he hasn't you know, had allowed any sacks to this point. That is extremely encouraging, though, I would say. And, again, these are some elite pass rushes that they're, that, that Abe Lucas is facing. Sometimes he has to match up with Bosa, just depending on how the defense moves things around. So I think that's that's extremely encouraging. I think, uh, like Cross, they'll both get better. They'll both get more comfortable. And every team that they play, like I said, they're just not going to be playing, you know, super elite lines like that. So that'll give them a chance to get their feet wet more and get some more confidence under them so that they can really, I think they can be elite tackles in this league. My takeaway two is similar to takeaway one, and that is that the cornerbacks are also doing well. Well, I'll say at least I think Tariq Woolen has really shown improvement as a starter. He, too, has been tested early. He's faced some elite talent. He's faced it. You know, he's had to go against Jerry Judy or K.J. Hamler, uh, Cortland Sutton. He's been put in some tough positions. Then he's going up against Brandon Ayuk and Debo Samuels. These are some of the best wide receivers in the league. So he's been tested early. And I think that will pay true dividends for next year and beyond i think we'll begin to see the fruits of those opportunities of those experiences probably even towards the end of the season but especially i expect to see a lot of that next year now pff does not love Tariq woolen as much as charles cross and abe lucas and i understand that because penalties are a big factor with what Tariq woolen has brought the table if you're looking at the film 
to the eye test, he's sticky in coverage. He's not getting lost on his man. He's His positioning is good. He could work on his technique a little bit, playing the outside shoulder. I think he needs to work on getting his head turned around a bit often. Uh, that something Sometimes that's what causes him to get penalties, just not getting his head turned around to look like he's making a play on the ball. I think that's his biggest area. But otherwise, he is there with his man. He's not getting beat. He's not getting burned out there. I just think more than anything, he needs to get the confidence that he doesn't have to be so grabby when he gets towards the top of his route. Sometimes he tends to grab a you know a jersey, a fistful of jersey. I know that happened in week one against KJ Hamler. He'll get sort of grabby, lose his confidence. I think as he improves, as he begins to understand, he can he can run with anybody in this league. There's not going to be a wide receiver who he's not going to be able to stay on top of. He's not getting beat over the top. That's not a concern for him. He just had got to have the confidence to, you know, do that jostling towards, you know, you can do that as your as the route is developing. But once that you get to the end of that route, you got to just make a play, just be present, trust his technique. He's got the physical tools to do it. I think he's got the opportunity to be really elite, to be a true star for the Seattle team. He's just got to work on his confidence. That's going to come with time. That's completely understandable for a guy his position. But in terms of mistakes, those are the type of mistakes that you want to see from a defensive back. You don't want to see him getting burned. You don't want to see him getting beat. That's not the type of things you want to see. That stuff, the penalties, the technique, the positioning, the experience, getting his head turned around, all that stuff, it can be it can be coached up easily. Uh, Kobe Bryant, on the other hand, is not doing as well. In my opinion, I don't, I don't think he's a nickel corner. I think that his decline in terms of when people started saying, you know, because let's go back to the beginning of training camp. The talk of the town before Tariq Woolen was even being put in the position to be getting first team reps or anything like that, it was Kobe Bryant and how he was pushing Sidney Jones and pushing Artie Barnes. Artie Burns. I don't know why I keep saying Artie Barnes, but he was pushing those guys. And then they decided to put him at nickel. And then that's when he started not performing so well. And at times he can perform better than Justin Coleman, but not really. He tends to get put in vulnerable positions. I just don't think that his skill set is best suited at nickel. I think they've got him at nickel for competition's sake. I think I'd rather see Trey Brown come back, a healthy Trey Brown come back and compete at that nickel spot. That may be a better spot for him than it is for a Kobe Bryant. And while I'd love to see uh, Tariq and Kobe out there, I, I like what I'm seeing for Michael Jackson. So Kobe can be, you know, a backup right now, and I think that will be fine. I still have just as much faith in him. I just don't think he's been put in a good position. And so – for me, I'm not going to spend too much time as we move forward on Kobe Bryant because I think if he were put on the outside, I think you'd see a lot more promise from him just like you're seeing from Tariq Woolen. So don't panic over Kobe Bryant if you're concerned about the way he looks. I just think it's a personnel thing. They're just trying to get him reps on the field. They're trying to get ex- him experience. And I understand that to a certain degree, but I do think at some point you got to recognize he's not in the right position it's only been a couple weeks, so they might keep him there a little while. But I, I hope that they don't continue too long with this. I'd like to just see him get some reps on the outside and just see how he does. I think they'll see the Kobe Bryant of the beginning of the training camp because that's what he does best. Now, takeaway number three is not so encouraging. 
the run defense is a problem. And I mean a problem. It's one of the worst in the league. It's awful. And unfortunately, Daryl Taylor has a big deal to do with it. And I'll talk more about Daryl Taylor and his performance through this time a little bit later on in this show. But the run defense was a problem in week one, and it's an even bigger problem in week two. Now, Pete Carroll did address this, and he talked about how the new scheme requires a linebacker to do different things. They're still adjusting, and he made a good point. It's pretty much boom or bust when it comes to the run defense. Either they're stuffing it at the line of scrimmage, or they're getting a tackle for a loss, or there's a big yard to gain. And when it's that inconsistent, there's no in-between. There's no just allowing three, four yards. It's either boom or bust. It's... You know, that's not good. So if you're panicking about the run defense, just remember that there are plenty of plays where they're doing an amazing job at the line of scrimmage with the run game, not just in the goal line situations, but sometimes even as they're going down the field, they'll make a run, you know, a tackle for a loss or they'll stuff it at the line of scrimmage, but then they'll have another one and there's just this big wide open hole that for there for the running back to, to really cut through the defense there. And so what you want to see is a little bit more I basically a higher floor pretty much is what is what needs to happen in order for this defense to take place. I I don't think that the scheme won't work necessarily. That would be a that'll be way too early of a jump. I just think there's an adjustment for these guys and it'll take some time. I mean it is a new scheme. I was hoping that with the new scheme they'd be able to adjust. But the reality is there's just you know, there's still young players. Jordan Brooks is a young player. Daryl Taylor is a young player. Uh, they got Boye Mafe getting snaps now. Uh, they're just a lot of guys, especially with Jamal Adams being gone. That's a huge loss. I think I, when I anticipated this defense picking it up and doing well, I saw Jamal Adams as, as being able to thrive, especially if nothing else with any concerns I would have with the run defense. I think Jamal Adams would be a huge help with that. And he graded out high in his few snaps that he had um, with the Seahawks. I think he looked good out there and it's hard to say that because it's only 15 snaps I get that but I think he would have made a big difference here in this run game I think they planned on him making a difference with the run game kind of being that safety net so to speak um, with his ability to get downhill quickly I think they they needed that they counted on that and now they've got to figure out how to scheme without Jamal Adams given like I said that scheme was made around him in a lot of in a lot of ways so don't panic, guys. It's bad now, but and it may be bad this season. That's just a reality. Uh, but there are some promising things to be encouraged by. You just got to remember that this season is the long game. It's about are you seeing progression? It's about are these things getting better over time? That's the thing to pay attention to. Not, you know, how bad do they look on paper? All right. And I will say this. Takeaway number four is probably the most concerning thing. I am extremely concerned about this particular thing. And that is that tackling is still a huge issue. So many missed tackles. Now, part of it is they're on the field too long. But that was an issue in the preseason. And you can say those are different guys in the preseason because they are. But the same issue seems to be carrying over to the starters. Uh, more tackling drills need to be happening in practice. It needs to be a huge point of emphasis because these guys aren't getting it. Key guys, Quandre Diggs, missing tackles. Al Woods, missing tackles. Eugene Nawasu, missing tackles. These are veteran guys. These aren't new guys. These are guys who 
you should be able to count on to make reliable tackles. And every now and then something's going to happen. But here's how bad the missed tackles are. Through two weeks, through two weeks, the Seahawks have 27 missed tackles. You heard me right. 27 missed tackles. That's unacceptable, especially because a lot of these aren't coming from the rookies. They aren't coming from the young players. Some of them are, but your veterans are sometimes more guilty than the young players are. Unacceptable. Not good. It's not good at all. And if there's anything of all these takeaways I've got, anything I'm going to hit the panic button about, I think it's that one. And I think that's not being talked about enough. People are talking about how bad the run defense is. People are, you know, talking about Charles and Abraham. And most people are pleased about that. People are talking about Tariq. People are talking about Daryl Taylor. And they're talking about Kobe Bryant. People aren't talking about these missed tackles the way they need to be because that's been that's a huge reason why these guys can't get off the field. Sure, penalties. Everybody's talking about the penalties. They should talk about the penalties. Those things can get cleaned up. If you can't tackle... If the, if the veterans that, that, that you're paying can't tackle, can't be relied on to tackle, that's much more problematic than any issue or any penalty issue that a rookie could have at this point. And so I got to hit the panic button on that. I, I'm at about, I, it's week two, but I'm at about an eight. I'm at about an eight, nine on the panic meter myself. And I think there needs to be more questions asked about it. If this doesn't change, I mean, you got to cut that in half next game. And you have to. You can't have double-digit missed tackles in a week three performance. So that's something I want to see get cleaned up, and I want to see get cleaned up now. I can accept it from the young players, but not from these veteran guys. And so uh, that's something to pay attention to. It's something that I'll be monitoring, and I'll be keeping you updated on that. Because right now, I think that's got to be. And like I, I did my research. I tried to find if there were – if they led the league in that. Right now, they led the league in tackles made – with 108 tackles made through two games because the defense is on the field so long. But I could not find if they were leading with missed tackles. My guess is probably so, yeah, because any, anything else would just be ridiculous. So, uh, But for this finally, my fifth takeaway for both of these games, and then we'll move on to another segment, is the people talking about Shane Waldron and people, the Shane Waldron assessment. Here's where I stand with Shane Waldron. I think that... I'm not sure he's going to be an elite wonder boy kind of offensive coordinator. I think that's what people hoped with that would happen when he was brought in from the Rams. I think people had the expectation that he would just bring in this elite offense. I think, you know, there's still times when he still shows his youth. I think sometimes situationally the play calls could be better. I absolutely hated the wild car play, the wild, the uh, wildcat play. They had DJ Dallas throw probably one of the world's worst interceptions uh, in the end zone there. I think that play wasn't needed there. And I don't think trick plays really work in goal line situations that like that too well anyway. Um, and it wasn't needed. They'd already had some momentum. They'd already been getting plays. They already kind of had the defense on his heels a little bit. You just want to keep that momentum going. It was sort of – not quite up-tempo, but it was moving in that direction. Like I said, momentum was on their side. Um, and I d- just you didn't need that then. It's not like the offense was struggling. And sure, Shane Waldron made the call. I think Pete did take some ownership in that. He should have you know, not let that play call happen. I agree. 
And that is his call. That is his job to do. But, you know, at the end of the day, I guess I appreciate him letting Waldron make that call. But that was questionable. Outside of that, I thought the trick play to that actually got that big uh, pass to that I mentioned earlier from Geno to Metcalf. They got called back because of the, the Abe Lucas holding. I mean, sorry, illegal field, illegal man downfield. I actually think that was good. So people aren't talking about that one. People are just talking about the one that didn't succeed. And I understand when you run a trick play, if it doesn't work, people are going to criticize it more. If it works, then cool. But I, I think I've liked some of the things I've seen. People are saying Shane Waldron is horrible. I don't think that that's true. One, P admitted just as much that they haven't been using the full offensive playbook. So there's only so much that Shane Waldron has been allowed to use. So that's to be considered. Also, when you get behind the sticks in these situations, it's hard to really fully evaluate the offense. And a lot of the things that have gotten them behind the sticks aren't because of play calling. It's because of penalties on offense by, you know, the offensive, uh, young offensive line. So the jury's still out on that. Do I think he is an elite Wonder Boy guy? No. Um, but I also think you could do a lot worse than Shane Waldron at the same time. I think that sometimes as Seahawks fans, you get the starry eyes for uh, some of these great offensive coordinators who are just excellent and ultimately end up being head coaches. You know, some offensive coordinators are just pretty good. And sometimes they're going to make mistakes. And sometimes they're going to be the wrong call. And that even happens with the best of, of, of offensive coordinators. Sometimes they make bad calls and the quarterbacks and the talent can just make it work. And right now, Shane Walsh doesn't have that to fall back on. So just to keep that in mind, are there rough patches? Yes, but I'm not, you know, I'm not team. Shane Walter needs to be fired. It's It's too early for that. The guy hasn't. In my opinion, his most fireable offense to this point is probably that wildcat play <laughs> that was a borderline fireable offense. But I think if you over if you overlook that, I get it was a mistake. But outside of that, there hasn't been just too many things that are just alarming that the play calling is the issue. It's just not helping, I think. Um, is, it, is it worth, you know, running through a bunch of offensive coordinators to find the Wonder Boy guy? I don't think so. I really don't. I understand why some Seahawks fans might want the absolute best of the best. But here's the thing. If you found the Wonder Boy, if you found the elite offensive talent guy who makes Geno look like, I don't know. I was going to say Jimmy Garoppolo, but they actually don't look that different. Who makes Geno look like Josh Allen or something like that. Then that guy's not going to be on the team long anyway. So you're just going to lose him. Um and given that this team isn't ready to take advantage of that and, and, and take it with a Super Bowl, I think Shane Waldron is fine for where this team is, where this offense is. You know, get a rookie quarterback, get get him in this system, get him acquainted, and in a year or two, once you figure out his strengths and his weaknesses, if you find that you need another another coordinator at that point, then do that. But I don't see a reason to jump ship at this point. I, I say keep him for another year or two, see how things develop, see how things go. And if it's time to move on at that point, then you do so. All right, so those are my official takeaways for the Seahawks game. We just got this one little segment I want to do here to close us out. And we'll get into it right now. 
So before we close out, I thought it would be this fun little segment that we would do at the end of each game. So I'll kind of do a combination of the two weeks, but moving forward, I think we'll probably include this in our post-game reaction. So let's do some Seahawks superlatives. Um, as you guys know, this is a fairly young team, so I thought it would be fun little thing just to do some superlatives on every week. We'll just evaluate. Uh, we'll, and, and you guys can give me feedback on Twitter, on YouTube if you're listening. If you guys have any deals for superlatives that we can add on this. But we'll just do four to start us off with, and then we'll go from there. We'll do one on offense and defense for each category. So let's start off with most improved through week two. On offense, we're going to start with Kobe Parkinson, who I think coming off of a pretty disappointing uh, start with the Seattle Seahawks after being drafted. He was constantly dealing with injuries, foot injuries, and we'd hear about this potential, but we'd never see it. But right now, he's one of the few players with a receiving touchdown by Geno Smith. He's caught 100% of his targets. That's only two targets, but still, he's made the best out of them. 43 yards. Um... No drops, 21.5 yards per reception. He's got seven yards after the catch per reception. And he's doing well in pass pro, which was a question mark for him. But he's doing very well. Right now, PFF grades him as a 78.8. So he's an overall positive on offense, whether he's catching the ball or whether he's just doing the assignment blocking and being part of some of these three tight end sets. He's doing exactly what this offense needs him to do. Would you love to see more production from him? Sure. Yeah, but you just got to keep in mind, kind of scale your idea of production when it's going to come to especially the third string tight end. I think we're starting to see some promise from him. And I think he can eventually maybe become a a tight end too. I don't think he'll ever become a a tight end number one. I don't don't know that he's that guy. But I think he can be a contributing depth piece to this team. He's showing value. And that's all you can ask um, from a late round pick like that. Now on defense, it was a little bit more of a struggle to come up with somebody but you know I think I'm gonna go with Michael Jackson I think Michael Jackson has showed some real flash plays I mean it really in every game he had two fumble recovers or two fumbles recovered in week one he got a touchdown the only Seahawks touchdown in week two and yes he's had some issues in coverage I think just some running, some growing pains, just like Tariq Woolen, because this guy didn't get a lot of playing time before he was with the Seahawks, so it's still new for him, too. He might not be a rookie, but he's still, you know, he's not guarded talent to this level, and so he's learning things, too, when it comes to the penalties, but you like what you see from him. When you look at the film, you like his coverage, you like his playmaking ability, you like his tenacity and the spirit with which he plays. He's just got to sing they kind of have a knack for the ball. And so that's a guy that you kind of want to keep out there on the field, uh, coming from his background, being bounced around in the league, never really finding a home. He seemed to be making himself uh, really a, a true part of this roster and showing uh, some of the only value we've seen. He's, he's given us some of our main highlights of the season so far. And like I said, you just don't see with the start he's had to his career, you don't see that. So I'm going to give most improved through week two on defense to Michael Jackson. It's really hard not to make a Michael Jackson reference, but so many other people do it. I'm going to refrain from like a beat it reference or anything like that, but just know I'm thinking. Okay, moving on to superlative number two. Most likely to succeed next game. 
And this was interesting because you pretty much have to project based off of how the performance has been going, who could be a wild card in the next matchup. And on offense, I'm going to go with DK Metcalf. I think DK Metcalf is likely to is likely to have a bigger breakout game the next game against the Atlanta Falcons. I don't think there's a corner that can cover him. Tyler Lockett has been, you know, doing well. I think he's been the one that we've seen more production for. But between the matchup against the team and some of Pete Carroll's comments about, if you guys don't know to this point, Pete Carroll has made in his press conferences comments about how they feel confident that the pass protection will hold up and that Geno will be able to make the throws. So they plan on going a little bit more deep downfield. They plan on opening up the playbook a little bit more, giving Geno an opportunity to throw it down deep to DK, taking advantage of the speed that they have at the wide receiver position. And so with that in mind, I think that's going to be a point of emphasis. And I'm just not sure anybody on the Falcons team can stop DK Metcalf. So I think that he, of all the offensive players, are really set up to to succeed and make the best of these opportunities that's coming up for him and on defense I want to go with Quandre Diggs you know I just talked about my frustration with him with missing tackles but he's also had some real opportunities to make some plays he's had two dropped interceptions at this point that's unlike Quandre Diggs he is normally a ball hawking guy and I think he's frustrated with himself I think he in his press conference, he talked about how this team is just not as good as he thought he was and how this league will humble you quickly. I think he's going to have that chip back on his shoulder. That's how Quandre Digg plays best anyway. I think we're going to see a much better version of him. And when you're talking about Marcus Mariota, I'm I, it just begs. It begs a pick six, doesn't it? Doesn't it just beg a pick six? I could just see that. Uh, and if it's not a pick six, I just feel like this is Quandre's week. He's had a couple of opportunities now, man, and I think he's going to get it together. I think week three is his three, his week. Uh, third week's the charm, and he's going to get at least one interception, maybe even two, um, knowing just to see how Marcus Mariota looks right now. It could go, and it could be a pretty big game for Quandre Diggs. Now, this one is most likely to get benched, and uh, there there are a couple of candidates for this one. So on offense, let's talk a little bit about a fella named Gabe Jackson, who has just been mauled, and I mean mauled, by the San Francisco 49ers. I mean, I think you could have put just a guy off the street in, and they would have played better than he played. He was just getting blown up on every play by himself, by himself. He allowed six pressures of the 15 that the Seahawks allowed. Six of them solely belonged to Gabe Jackson. For him to be a veteran and be, one, be I think, the highest play offensive lineman, that's unacceptable. Put in the backup. Put in Phil Haynes. Put in anybody else at this point. I think Kyle Fuller has shown more promise than that, and I'm not a Kyle Fuller fan if you don't know, but that's just how poor his performance was. PFF gave him a pass rating grade of 13. 13. Yeah. Yeah, if somebody's going to get benched on offense, it's going to be him. That interior offensive line is too important. Give the young, give a younger guy the opportunity to show that they can do better if that's what he's going to look like out there. I understand why they kept him. A lot of people disagree with even Gabe Jackson starting. 
And I understand that sentiment, but I understood it from the standpoint of you want a veteran presence on a very young offensive line. Well, I don't think that's what you want the young guys to be learning from. I just don't. I was more pleased with the tackles, and that shouldn't be the case. So I don't know if I have much more patience to watch this older guy be one of the worst, be the flat-out worst offensive lineman on the line. It's not like he played particularly well against the Broncos. He still allowed three pressures in that game. Like, half of the Seahawks' pressures to this point have been given up by him. Maybe the tackles would play better if they had better help from the inside. I'm just saying, it's worth putting out there. If you got that much of a liability, that makes it harder on these tackles out here. It really does. It puts a lot more pressure on them, and they've already got enough to adjust to. They've already got enough to learn from. So if there's somebody that's going to get benched on offense, it is and it should be, in my opinion, Gabe Jackson. On defense, Daryl Taylor. Daryl Taylor has had probably one of the most disappointing, you know, he technically is a second-year debut, but it's one of the most disappointing ones I can recall. He did not record a single pressure despite playing uh, a lot of snaps uh, in against the 49ers. And he's been such a liability in the run game. To this point, he's played 82 and 70% of the snaps on defense. And I have watched teams attack his side of the edges because they know he won't be able to set the edge at all against the run. I mean, it's almost pointless with him on the run. And then he's missed a lot of tackles on top of that. One play comes to mind against the 49ers where he had Debo say you're dead to rights. And because he missed the tackle, it ended up going for a 51-yarder, a 51-yard run. That's insane. That's insane. He, he, to this point, through two games, has been one of the worst defenders on the field. At this point, if he's not going to be able to set the edge, get Boye Mafia out there. Uh, I just think we need some more linebacker depth. They just picked up a Daryl Johnson, and I don't really know. I don't have any early impressions on him. He did play a few snaps last game, but uh, I think he had a tackle for a loss there at the end. I, I'm interested to see if that is meaningful. If he can set an edge and at least not be that much of a diability on the in the run game, you know what, I'll take it because Daryl Taylor isn't giving any pressure. He, he got four pressures against the Broncos, but I think some of that was, you know, planned pressures. Some of those pressures came off of a screen or some of those pressures just, it just didn't really make a difference in the game. And I will give him that he's been, you know, he's been, some things haven't gone his way in terms of holding calls. I've seen him be held and almost lassled down, especially in a week one game against the Broncos and it not be called. But, I mean, for as many snaps as he's been out there, that's one or two times I can recall that he's been blatantly held and he just, you know, it wasn't a a no call. And so uh, his effect on the game was then diminished. But he's just not getting to the quarterback enough. That's your main job. If you're going to be that much of a liability in the run, you've got to disrupt the quarterback. And right now, I just feel like Eugene Nwosu is the only one who can really get pressure on the QB and then the interior pressure from Shelby Harris. Uh, Al Woods has done a yeah, pretty good job. Uh, Shelby uh, Puna Ford hasn't really gotten pressure, but I think he's you know at least been stout in the run game. 
So I just think that there's, he's just been a huge liability in every way. And I don't know how or why he was so hyped up in training camp. I was actually a little concerned in the preseason about him. And I, you guys may have mentioned me mentioning this before, but I didn't see a lot from him in the preseason either. I just saw a lot of, he would get some pressure sometimes, but he didn't, he wouldn't be able to finish. And my concern is he can't, if he can't finish against the third stringers or the second stringers, yeah, is he really going to be able to even get any pressure against the first string? And to me, and it's just two games, so I'll give it that. But two games in, he looks like he's regressed more than anything else. This new scheme seems to put him in worse positions because of how bad he is in the run game and because he's not particularly strong in coverage either. And so I thought, you know, he played a 3-4 system in Tennessee and he thrived in that, but it just seems like at the NFL level that may not be his skill set, which is something to be concerned about. Um, I hate that Alton Robinson is gone right now because I'd be curious to see what he can bring to the table. He began to kind of come on there at the end of the preseason and at least he was flashing more than Derrick Taylor was. So I'd just be curious to see what he can do. At the very least, like I said, maybe he can help in the run game. So if there's somebody that's going to be benched, it's going to be Daryl Taylor. I I don't know if I, I think, if anything, the best case scenario for his long-term success with the Seahawks is probably just him coming in as a rotation player. I think he can be a better rotation player in this scheme, come in, give you a few sacks, you know, flash that way. I don't know if he's an every-down defensive edge in this scheme. And I think I, I think that's still going to be a top priority for the Seahawks moving forward in the draft. And like I said, it's two weeks in. So I'll admit this is early, but I'm looking at the preseason and I'm just looking at the lack of improvement from year one to year two for him. I know he's technically a third player, but we all know he didn't play that first year. So uh, that's to be determined. That's to be watched. But if there's a player that's going to get benched on defense, it's Daryl Taylor. All right. And then finally. Our last superlative, want to end on a positive note, best player all around. On offense, I want to give it to Tyler Lockett. Tyler Lockett has made the absolute best of every situation that he's ever been given. He's been reliable. Um, he's been able to make plays. He's been just, just knows where to be in the right position. Um, sometimes he's had to make some difficult catches, I think, on a couple of occasions. He's just been the guy. Uh, I was concerned about the connection between Tyler Lockett and Geno Smith, but that is apparent. It's definitely there. And I think he's been one of the few consistent bright spots through two weeks. So I'm going to give him that. And then defensively, I'm going to give Yuchan Nuosu the credit because he has been, I think, one of the lone pass rushers of this squad. He's been the only one that's been able to consistently get pressure, uh, disrupt the running, disrupt the quarterback. And he's had to do that on a lot of plays. And this is a guy who's coming from being a rotational player. So you want to keep that in mind. He was a rotational player behind Joey Bosa uh, at the charge, with the Chargers last year. And he's come on as a starter. And he's really flashed. And I think he's been fairly consistent, like I said, in being disruptive. And given he's like the only one doing that regularly, that's impressive to me. And yes, he could do better with a couple of missed tackles, but he was the defensive player of the week in week one. And like I said, I think he had a really strong game in week two. So in terms of all around defensive performance, he's been that guy. I've I've been most impressed with him. A, A really strong free agent signing. Super happy about that one. And he might even prove to be a long term piece of this team. We'll just see. It is just two weeks in, but I'm excited for what I've seen from Nuchenna Nuosu.
right, guys, that is all the time we have for today. I appreciate you listening. I'm happy and excited to get back to covering the team on a week-to-week basis. On our next episode, we're going to preview the episode. We're going to preview the upcoming game where the Seattle Seahawks will face the Atlanta Falcons. We'll preview that game and break everything down that you need to know. In the meantime, be sure to follow me on Twitter at CandiceH901. Make sure to follow the show at Ethos Seahawks on Twitter. Give us your thoughts, feedback. Uh, we love to hear any ideas or things that you have. Uh, always trying to make sure that we are accommodating you all's listening pleasures. Well, that's it, guys. That's all the time I have for today. I'm out. And as always, go Hawks.